Hey everybody, uh, allow me to add my welcome to the mix. My name is Stephen, and uh, if I haven't had the chance to get to know you, uh, I'd love to grab coffee with you sometime and, and do that. Um, I, I hope you'll introduce yourself. We are continuing this morning in Mark's telling of Jesus' story, and you'll notice in your bulletins there's something a little extra. We've got a kind of a visual timeline of the gospel. Real quick, as you're looking at that, I want to note one discrepancy between what's up on the screen and what you have in your hand, and that's that the parables begin at chapter 4. So swap that section that says kingdom authority with kingdom parables on there. Uh, my mistake, not Tara's. I was moving too fast. I didn't, uh, you know, like proofread my own stuff. But in a sense, the, what this kind of highlights is that Mark's gospel is a story told kind of in two parts with a hinge in the middle. And what he's trying to show us is clear from the very first line that there is a new king, a new kingdom that is coming into the world. The king's name is Jesus, but he is not the kind of king that you would be expecting. And because of that, there is this constant theme all throughout the gospel of secrecy where Jesus is trying to keep his identity and his, his, who he is as the beloved, as the son of God, a secret from folks. And then at the time comes when the, it's time for the secret to, to come out. Everything moves very quickly from that point on to the cross. Well, we have gone uh, you know, six weeks through the first 20 verses of Mark. And starting this week, we're going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit. And we're going to do that by taking a look at what is essentially Jesus' first public day in ministry. Kind of like a, a day in the life of Jesus. And so verses uh, 21 through 38 kind of comprise one 24-hour period. And then verses 39 through 45 describe a second day. And all of that is just kind of a way of saying that this is what it looks like on the ground level when the kingdom of God begins to break into the world. So as uh, Jane comes forward to read for us the gospel, if you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45, and I want to uh, you know, forewarn you to keep your Bibles open maybe a little bit, because there's a lot going on in this section. And my approach, because of that is going to be a little bit different this morning, kind of going to go old school and go kind of section by section through the gospel. Listen carefully, this is God's word to you. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her, so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. 
That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, God, we come seeking a word that can only come from you. And so we ask this morning that you would be gracious to our seeking and that the word that we hear would break into those guarded places of our hearts, that we would be your disciples. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So after... Jesus begins announcing that the kingdom of God has come and he calls his first disciples. He goes out to the village of Capernaum and this is going to be kind of like a home base for him over the first part of his ministry, the city just to the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And the scene takes place on what day? On the Sabbath day, yeah. The Sabbath, it's Something, you know, significant, that Jesus' ministry starts on the Sabbath day, the, the seventh day of the week, the day that God rested, where God's people are commanded to refrain from working, to remember that they are not just productivity machines, that they are free from the oppression of Pharaoh. Instead, they are a people who are, you know, were led by God out of out of Egypt into a place of bonding where God would provide for them, where God provides for them still. It was a day to stop, a day to rest, a day to delight in God and delight in each other, a day to worship and remember and to receive from God. And we find Jesus here on the day that the Sabbath came in the synagogue, this place that was the center of Israel's cultural and religious life. It was a place of gathering, a place of worship, a place of, of prayer and teaching. And on this, you know, Sabbath, this was part of Jesus' weekly rhythm, he was asked to teach. 
Now, most synagogues did not have a paid rabbi. It was a very revered position in the culture, but, you know, there's just, because of how difficult it was to go through the training, there just weren't a lot of them to go around. And so lay people and scribes would, would often be asked to, to teach the law. And these were people who didn't just have the Torah memorized, but they could read, they could write. They were people who knew the traditions of the rabbis that came before them. And typically their teaching would consist of kind of going over what are the various ways of looking at Scripture were, the the various ways that the rabbis have interpreted it. So they would say something like, you know, Rabbi Akiba says this, but over here, you know, Rabbi Shammai offers this interpretation. What do you think? They were not about offering their own way of interpreting. They were instead about appealing to the authority of the rabbis that came before them. They were speaking out of the tradition. And so when Jesus comes to town and he's asked to teach on this Sabbath day, this is kind of what they're expecting. They're expecting him to, you know, play the greatest hits of the rabbis that have come before him. Only Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't make reference to tradition. He doesn't you know, make reference to the church fathers or the, the synagogue fathers that came before him. He speaks with a kind of clarity and conviction that is deeper than all of that. The word uh, in Greek is exousia. It's, it's kind of a, a tricky word to translate. It's, it's inexact, but it, it's actually two words kind of stuck together. Ek meaning out of and usia, which is the word for essence or the substance of a thing. And this is how Jesus is teaching. He's he's teaching as somebody who is speaking out of the heart and soul of Scripture itself. Uh, And and this isn't a knock on the other teachers. It's not that they were bad. It's just that there was something tangibly different when Jesus was teaching on this Sabbath morning. There was something different about what he taught, about the way that he taught. You could feel the weight of his authority, almost like you could feel the word becoming flesh. And then as he's teaching, look what happens in verse 24. Right as the people who are are, are wondering who this guy is who has such authority, another guy who is a member of the synagogue, somebody who they sit with on a weekly basis, who is tormented by a demon, gets agitated and interrupts the service. What do you want for us with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That has never happened when I preach. It didn't happen in the first service. I said, well, you know, the jury's out on the second service. We'll see how it goes. But, but right here, at the very start of Jesus' ministry, when the kingdom begins to break in, there is immediate pushback. And underneath and behind all of the conflicts that Jesus is going to have with, with Rome, with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, underneath all of that is the power structure of evil in the world. And that might be kind of where the story loses us a little bit, right? We, we live in the background of this kind of Epicurean, secular mindset. We have categorizations of mental health. We have, you know, uh, mental illness. We have best practices for mental health. We've made huge advancements in, in medications and understanding of, of brain chemistry and, you know, the stresses that are brought on by poverty and systemic inequalities. Like, we know all about that stuff. And, and absolutely, all of that is, is true. I'm a huge fan of therapy. It's been super helpful for me. Strong advocate for mental health. But also, I, I got to say, I think it would be really reductive to say that, you know, they just didn't know what we know because Mark is not describing mental illness here. 
The demons in, in this passage, they have the best theology out of everybody. They're the ones who know what is going on. And all the biblical scholars, and I, I read a stack of them kind of uh, looking at this section, they all point out that what Mark wants us to see is that the acid test for Jesus' authority over Scripture is his authority over what is going on in the spiritual world. And there are all kinds of like uh, exorcism stories all throughout the literature of the ancient Near East. And you know, a lot of them involve uh, incantations and, and props and rituals and ceremonies and struggle, you know, like head spinning and, you know, split pea soup kind of stuff, right? Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus is meeting an enemy that already knows it's been defeated. And all he has to do is say the word. Mark notes twice that the people are amazed, amazed first by his teaching, amazed a second time by the fact that he has authority over the spiritual world. Not a normal Sabbath service. A lot going on here. Word starts to get around, and Jesus' day is just getting started. Verse 29, as soon as the disciples and disciples left, Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Now, there's actually no concept of a single-family home in the ancient Near East. Uh, people lived in what was called an insula complex, which is essentially a series of three or four homes built into a hillside with a large courtyard in the middle. That's where people would you know, do things like their laundry, uh, meal prep, uh, eating meals, uh, you know, things like that. And you know, the idea is that there were multiple generations all living in a complex together. Can you imagine that? Multiple generations living with your family, your in-laws, all in one house. I'm just going to go ahead and let you, I'm not going to make any comment on that. Uh, if you've seen the movie Encanto, uh, picture the Casa Madrigal, except like 19th centuries earlier and no magic doors or anything like that. But that's kind of the idea, right? So Peter and Andrew, they lived together along with Peter's wife, he was married, and uh, his wife's mother, who has been in bed, ill, with a fever, kind of on the door of death. And, you know, Peter and Andrew, they, had, they were just in the, the synagogue. They saw what Jesus did there. Uh, they, they saw what went down. They're wondering, what else can he do? And so they immediately bring Jesus to her. And just like the unclean spirit that Jesus comes across in the synagogue, he touches her, the fever leaves, without any fanfare, to the extent that she gets up and she starts waiting on them. Can a girl get a break, right? I actually don't think it's like that. I think about it like this. If you have been restored fully, body, soul, and mind, what else can you give that makes sense? You would give everything. You would give your service. For Jesus, healing is not just about removing illness. It is about bringing people to full restoration. It's about bringing people to a place where they can flourish. And hospitality was huge in first century culture. It still is in most parts of the Middle East. If you go into somebody's home, they want to be able to treat you as a guest invited. They, they will pull out and give the best of what they have. 
And this is much more true for a rabbi, not, who is not just any rabbi, but one who speaks with authority. You want to give your best. Well, the day's not over yet. People hear about all the things that Jesus has done. He's a great teacher. Did you hear about the spirit that was cast out? And now he's healing people. And bear in mind, this is the Sabbath day. And so people are not, you know, uh, traveling on the Sabbath. They're not, you know, going out. They can't work. And so the moment that the sun goes down, people start flooding in and to the point where Mark says the whole town is on the doorstep. And Jesus is up late into the night healing people, teaching them, casting out demons, showing people this is what the kingdom is all about. Day one of Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. But the story just keeps rolling along. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The very next morning, Jesus goes to a place outside of the city, into the wilderness, away from the noise, away from the crowds, for the sole purpose of being with the one whom he called Father. And the disciples, they come out looking for him. They're like, dude, where, where are you? Everyone is looking for you. Everybody wants to know what's going on. Hashtag Messiah is like blowing up, right? Everybody wants to see what the next thing is. People want to talk to you. What are you doing out here all by yourself? We've got to ride this wave. We've got to build momentum. We've got to strike while the iron is hot and other metaphors as well. And Jesus is like, no. Time to go somewhere else. These people have all seen what it's like when the kingdom of God breaks into the world. Other people need to know it's time to get up and get moving. It's not why I'm here. I'm not here to to ride the wave of success. I'm here to do the will of the Father. So in verse 39, he traveled all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, driving out demons, meaning What happened in one day in Capernaum starts to happen up and down the Galilee region. Jesus would draw crowds with his teaching. They would come to him. They would fill the synagogue. And then he would go out into the community in people's homes and out on the street. Village after village, home after home, story after story of God's kingdom breaking into the world. So before we finish the first chapter, there's just a a few things that I want to point out about these first 24 hours of Jesus' ministry. And the first one is that Jesus does his work both in the gathering of God's people and in the sending. Another way of saying that is that Jesus sees that the synagogue and the home, they are both places of formation, For Jesus and his disciples, this was a both-and proposition. Sabbath worship was a key part of Jesus' life. He is being with people, praying with them, worshiping together, teaching. He was all about life together also in the living room and all about being around people around a fire pit or being around people in a courtyard. And it's key that we see this from the very beginning of the story because I think there is this perception out there in some corners of the popular imagination that Jesus was kind of like down on organized religion or ambivalent about gathering, that he was kind of anti-establishment stuff. And 
the, the glaring problem with all that is that for all the conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders, whenever we see him on the Sabbath, he is there worshiping and teaching. And most of his conflicts happen on the Sabbath in and around the context of his being in worship. So whatever Jesus had to say about Israel and its spiritual life, Sabbath worship was a key part of what he did. He was known all around the first century for doing two things, for teaching about the kingdom and for demonstrating what the kingdom looked like. He was all about that. He found village after village teaching. He did it in the synagogue. And so Jesus' weekly rhythm included Sabbath worship. His disciples' rhythm included Sabbath worship. If it it didn't, then we wouldn't have carried that on. And so all that is to say that we need both. We need the weekly gathering of God's people in places like this, in worship, in liturgy, in song, in teaching. But we also need just as much, if not more, the weekly gathering gathering, being sent out into our homes, into our community for the week-long formation that takes place in coffee shops, in our homes, in our places of work all week long, the places where we spend most of our time. One without the other is incomplete. If all you experience of formation is this, there is so much more in our life together. We are sent out to proclaim the reality of the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus saw the home as a staging ground for formation and for mission. Here's why that matters. I think so often we tend to think of the home the way that Jesus thought of the wilderness. Home is the place where we go to retreat, where we go to kind of, you know, it's our haven. It's the the place apart from the crowds where we get to unwind where we get to unplug rest unless you have small kids and it's chaos right (laughs) whereas mission is something that happens out there out in the world uh in a in a foreign trip or in a soup kitchen or building a habitat house or, or or whatever it is but for jesus the paradigm was very different home was open it was another place for formation to happen As Rosario Butterfield puts it, the gospel comes with a house key. It's the place where hospitality is offered. It's the place where people experience the grace of God gathering around a table, around the presence of a meal where holistic healing takes place. All throughout the gospel, Jesus is gathered in people's home, gathered with all kinds of people, often the ones who were on the margins, on the edges of society. And he is saying, there is a welcome place for you at God's table. Come and be with me. Here is a space for you to belong. And the place that Jesus chose to get away from all that was the desert. Well, what am I saying? I'm not saying that that means that your home needs to be a hive of activity and that, you know, the the fruit of discipleship is that you collapse in a heap exhausted every night. Um, It's just simply an invitation to think through what are the intentional rhythms and practices that take place in the home. Raising children is formation that happens in the home. 
Back in 2005, Christian Smith, who is a sociologist at UNC Chapel Hill, he published the largest study of religious habits of American teenagers under the title of a book called Soul Searching. Um, it's, it's an amazing kind of read uh, if you're into like, you know, dense sociology. Which that's why you have me up here, right? Um, but it was, it was kind of like going through, finding out what are the religious attitudes, habits, and practices of American teenagers. And among them, one of the, the key findings that they found is that the, the spiritual habits of, of teenagers, they tend to mirror the spiritual habits that they see their parents practice almost you know, to a remarkable degree. And that's true of both intentional practices like prayer and, and scripture reading and, and journaling and things like that. Uh, being present around a, a dinner table. But it's also true of the unintentional habits that creep into our lives. Scrolling through Instagram, uh, you know, flipping through uh, social media, being in the room but being a thousand miles away. So what would it look like for you to think of your home, your apartment, the place you live, as the center of where you are involved in God's work of renewal? The place where your will is aligned with God's will. What would it look like for your living room to be the space where all the best conversations about Jesus and the kingdom happen? Where your kitchen table is a place where there are lots of different kinds of people gathered around a sense of God's welcome. That's what Jesus was all about. And then finally, Jesus made time for the intentional practice of being alone with God. His life was marked by time away in the presence of God. It's easy to miss this, but, you know, after a a long day of, of work on this first day of ministry, Jesus doesn't sleep in the next morning. All this stuff happens, like I said, on one day. Mark uses the word immediately or just then, all of the time throughout this section to get a sense of the pace that Jesus was moving at on this first day. He's up all night, you know, healing people, casting out demons. I assume that makes you tired. And if that were me, I'd be taking a day off. You know, like maybe I would walk my snowball, you know, my dog snowball down to, uh, down to Perk and or, or down to Kavarna and get like a pour over or something. Kind of in the spirit of treat yourself. You had a nice day. You did, you did good work. But that's not what we see Jesus doing. Jesus fought for space away. He fought for you know, a, a place that was free from all of the clamor and the noise. He got up early in the morning while it was still dark to be still and to receive from God. This is part of his regular rhythm of renewal. So my question to you is, do you have a regular rhythm of renewal? We live in a culture where tired and overworked are like accessories that we wear. I mean, how many of you are tired? You don't have to raise your hands. I mean, I know, I know you're tired. I'm a hardcore introvert. Like, I love being with you. Sunday morning's highlight of my week. But, um, like, I leave here and I'm exhausted. And the pace of life that we lead is designed to wear us out, ushering us on to the next thing, the next thing to consume, whether that's a, a true crime podcast or a Netflix series or, or just even, you know, the simple things of like a load of laundry to wash. 
we are always, you know, set about all kinds of things that will drive us into a sense of exhaustion if we are not careful. But Jesus takes time to be with the Father. He takes time to wind down and to to rest and receive. And whenever we see this happen, it always propels Jesus into a deeper part of his ministry. And so if you're going to find space to to sit in the quiet, you're going to have to fight for it. How is it that you get renewed? I mean, some of you, it's, you know, being out on a, a, a mountain trail, you know, with, with the wind in your face and just t- drinking in the sense of God's beauty. Others of you, you're social animals. You, you love the buzz of activity. Wherever you are, you're going to need time to be alone with God. For Jesus, this provided clarity and focus, This is a pattern we see all throughout the Gospels, that whenever Jesus entered into a time of silence and solitude, he always emerged from that place with a deeper engagement on mission. His his vision, his clarity, his trajectory arose out of these times uh, of quiet. The biggest moments of his life took place against the background of his sitting in silence and solitude with God. Some of you have big decisions that you've got to make. You've got things that are on the horizon What would it look like for you to spend time intentionally listening without visual pollution kind of pulling your eyes toward the little red circles on your phone or toward the haptic of one more notification coming in on your wrist? And I'll be honest, like I am not the best at this right now now at this particular moment. I wish I could tell you that I was, that I'm, I'm coming out of a life that is noticeably marked by times of, of silence and solitude. There have been other seasons in my life that, that have been like that, but right now, I, the busier that I get, the less inclined I am to pull away from the noise or the narcotic undertow of productivity and just be still. But I also know the deep rest that comes on the other side of fighting for space. The more Jesus grew in fame and popularity, the more he had voices around him telling him who to be, telling him what to do, the more time he carved out for silence with the Father and the more focused he became on what he was sent to do. Every time Jesus comes from this place of silence, he comes ready to live for the sake of others. And from these places of stillness and and silence, he is able to lead others into a place of stillness and silence and rest. It's exactly how it is with us. And that's what the world needs from us. It doesn't need, you know, more talking heads shaping opinion. It doesn't need more people promising a, a better life if you, just, if you just buy one more thing. It needs people who have learned to cultivate stillness in their lives so that when the noise gets turned up, they are a people of deep rest. It has been noisy of late, right? It needs people who carry rest with them wherever they go. So what is it that's keeping you from slowing down? What if the Sabbath on weekends set the course for your week? It became the place of strength that you came out of rather than just the place of refuge you go to when you're exhausted. What happens when God's people live this way? Well, there's one last bit of the story. 
Out of this place of silence, Jesus begins to go all throughout the villages, and pretty soon a man with leprosy comes up to him. Uh, this was one of the most feared diseases at the time. It would lead to nerves deadening, uh, paralysis, horrible skin lesions, but the worst part of it all was the sense of social isolation that would come upon you. Uh, Lepers weren't allowed to be in community with other people. They would have to go outside of the town, cut off from friends and family, living in a leper colony, cut off from the temple, cut off from the, the synagogue, which means that they were also cut off from the presence of God. It was kind of like experiencing a, a social death, waiting for the body to catch up with it. And so this man comes up to Jesus, desperate as all get out. And he says, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus is torn up by this. Uh, some translations say Jesus was indignant. Uh, the word actually is splanksnizomai, which is just fun to say. Um, it's this kind of visceral word, though. It's this idea of being moved in your inmost parts. And so if Jesus is indignant, it's not at the man. It's not at his request. It's not at the, the idea that he didn't have enough faith, that he doubted. I think Jesus is mad at the suffering that ravaged this man's body, the suffering that removed him from community, because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what the kingdom looks like. These are the things that break God's heart. So Jesus touches him, which would have made everybody gasp, right? Everybody thought that you got leprosy by touching somebody who's unclean from surface contamination. Turns out it's an airborne disease through droplets. Easy mistake to make. And Jesus is a rabbi. You know, this isn't a good look to go around touching things that are unclean. But Jesus does. And does it make Jesus unclean? No. It makes the man restored. And this story ends with the one who is on the outside being brought in, and then Jesus, who brings healing, is out on the outside, which is exactly how he saves all of us. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see a picture of God's heart. This is what it looks like when the kingdom breaks in, that those on the outside, those on the margins, those with tangible need, those who are isolated, they are brought near. And there is this crazy idea, both inside and outside of religious culture, that, you know, if there is a God, God is angry. And that if you're going to come to God, you need to clean yourself up first. It's insane, but it's how a lot of us live. It's like saying, I really need to go to the gym, but I've got to lose weight first. I really need to go to the doctor to get, to get well, but I need to feel better first. Right, I mean, it's insane. But there are also a lot of people who know that we need healing, and so we just come to the hospital and sit in the lobby, never asking for help. Church can be a really easy place to sit in proximity to Jesus and never ask Jesus for healing. It's tragic, but it happens all the time. Pete Scazzaro calls it using God to hide from God. And maybe it's because of this nagging voice that tells us that, you know, God can't tolerate sin. God can't have anything unclean in God's presence. But is that what we see in Jesus? And he's every bit God. He speaks with 
authority. The unclean man comes to Jesus and the man is restored, made brand new. Jesus, you know, for his part, he has zero interest in capitalizing on all this. He's not there for the spectacle. So he tells the man, go and do what the law requires. These aren't some sort of, you know, random series of disconnected events. I am telling you the story of God's grace breaking into the world. This is what it looks like when heaven begins to invade earth. I have been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release for the darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim that God is for those who sit in darkness and to warn those who are hogging all of the light to trade ashes for beauty. So go, do what the law, do what the, the prophets tell you to do because the kingdom is near. And of course, you know, he tells the guy to be quiet, but the guy can't because the news is just too good. So what happens when God's people slow down enough to draw near to the heart of the Father? To be moved with compassion for the hurting of the world. To see our homes and our neighborhoods, our relationships at work as the staging ground for God's mission in the world. We begin to have eyes to see the world being made new. As Dr. King said on the day before he was assassinated, not just a new Jerusalem, but a new Atlanta a New York, a new Los Angeles. We need to talk about those things. We need to talk about where grace and healing come flooding in. When we do that, we see Jesus.